0: Welcome to the Draft Deeper podcast. This is your host Nathan Grubel, joining me as always is my producer Kevin Black. You just getting me again this time. We don't we don't have a guest for any of our tiers pods that we're doing, but this is part two out of three of the 2021 Draft Deeper tiers. So we're going through tiers four and five today. If you missed tiers one through three, definitely check out our podcast feed. Make sure you listen to that one. We had 20 got guy, 21 guys, excuse me, that I went through. On that podcast, Um, basically MVP caliber players that I see coming out of this draft, max contract level starters on a championship team. And then the third tier would be guys that I see occupying a one through four role on like a really good or championship level team. So like first option through a fourth option. So we're going to move into tiers four and five today. Tier four, guys that I see being either the fifth guy in the lineup on a really or championship team. So still a contributor, still a starting level contributor, just maybe not one of those one through four options that you might expect from some of those other guys. Or they would fall in the category of like sixth man slash spot starter. So again, still playing pretty decent minutes on a really good team. Or they're also seen as like a specialist as well. So I had mentioned last podcast, if you did listen to it, that Two guys, and and I'm actually going to expand that to three um, because there's another guy that I have who really surprised me by some of the numbers and then I dug back through a little more tape and I see what some of the buzz is about with with this guy. You'll know exactly who I'm talking about when we get to him. But I, I, I mentioned at the end of last podcast that Corey Kisper and Davion Mitchell did not make my tiers one through three. The reason behind that is I would definitely label Corey Kisper as more of a shooting specialist than somebody I'm definitely drawing up plays for and viewing as like a first through fourth option on like a really good or championship level team. Now, does that mean he's any less valuable and shouldn't be taken in the lottery? Absolutely not. Somebody who is as great of a shooter as he is draws so much gravity and defensive attention towards him. I think that If you have somebody like him in your lineup and a defense has to essentially game plan around that level of a shooter and make sure at the very least that they have to sit a defender on him to face guard him and not let him go anywhere or or move without the ball or get himself free for an open shot, like that's a win. You're essentially occupying one defender and taking them out of the game. And then at that point, it's a four on four. But hopefully you have a first through four option that you can definitely build your system more around call plays for and then at that point that's really when you're getting into more of the x's and o's of the game so i still consider a player like Corey kispert an absolute win as for davion mitchell his case is a little different so i i see him as being able to do multiple things on the floor and i'll go through some of that as we go through the 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 numbers and we talk about some of these guys here but mitchell to me seems best suited to be like a sixth man on like a really good team. Somebody who you bring in who can handle the offense in a pinch and really you're having him out there to cause havoc and wreak havoc on the defensive end and then you're asking him to hit any open shots that he's able to walk into um, or, or maybe make a quick play for somebody else and handle the ball a little bit in transition. Like that to me is really what you're asking him to do. I don't think that you really are drafting him to be like an offensive engine or like a point guard that you're funneling a lot of offensive responsibility through. I think even if he is drafted somewhere like at seven to golden state, for example, I think that's definitely how they're viewing him at least from day one in the league, they're going to be bringing him off of the bench kind of giving him a little bit of responsibility to see how he handles running a second unit. But primarily, they're looking at him to bolster the defense on their second unit and then being able to hit open shots if he's sharing the court with some of the starters, maybe even being a spot starter, depending on who's in and out of the lineup on certain nights. Like, that's what really what you're looking for from Davion Mitchell, his first few years in the league. Um, so with, with that being said, that's really how I'm classifying tier four guys. And then tier five would be players who I see as being like the seventh through the ninth guy on like a really good, the championship level team. Like maybe they're not starter tier, or like six man tier, but they're definitely like guys I can see at some point in their careers playing valuable rotation minutes for like a really good team. I think that they can have that kind of ability down the road. So I have 33 guys here in total between both tiers. I have 16 guys in that tier four, and then I have 17 guys in that tier five. So as I mentioned on the first tiers podcast, this is a really, really, really deep draft. Normally I would not hand out this many first round grades. Um, I might not even hit 30 first round grades to be perfectly honest in in different years during the draft process. But the fact that basically tiers one through four all of those guys have like a first round level grade on them that should really tell everyone something about how deep this draft is and how much talent is starting to really come into the league in general like these guys are all so skilled that the majority of them have at least one to one and a half to two things that they can hang their hats on that's impressive you don't always get that every single year so with that being said Let's hop right into it. So, first guy I have on the list, and again, these are these guys are in tiers. They're not ranked within the tiers, so these guys are not in any particular order. They're the order that I have them on my spreadsheet. It's as they fall. So, the first guy I have up is Dayron Sharp, the center out of North Carolina. Definitely had some some pretty impressive moments in high school when he played for Montford was seen as a versatile big man prospect, with 6'11", 265 pounds, played about 19 minutes per game this year in North Carolina, almost 10 points, almost eight rebounds, and over an assist per game. Had a 25.4 player efficiency rating. That was actually really surprising to me because when you look at some of the other numbers, his role was pretty simplified in college, and he didn't get to showcase everything that he had in his bag back at Montverde, like you would see DeRon Sharp handle the ball in transition at times. You would see him making some plays for others in transition or in the half court. Like somebody that big, who can handle the ball and move, and is the kind of athlete that he is at that size. That's what makes him a pretty valuable prospect and somebody that, even though he's he's pretty raw and he doesn't have a polished skill set, when you dive into more of the numbers. At this point, if you're looking at guys in like a tier four or a tier five, they're probably not going to be able to do everything, right? Like if if they're coming into the league with a skill or two that you know that they can hang their hat on and are guys that have the athletic tools and, and have enough promise to be able to develop them and see what you have maybe two to three years down the road, that's that's where these guys are more or less falling at this point in the process right these these are not guys who you're looking at near the top of the draft who have like two three four five skills that they may be able to bank on within their first few years in the league all of these guys are going to need seasoning so um you look at some of the numbers though a 52.1 true shooting percentage for a big man you got to be higher than that when you're pretty much exclusively taking two point shots At that size, when the majority of your looks are coming around the basket, you're not shooting a lot of jump shots. You have to be better than that. The fact that he was in the ninth percentile in total defense, that also surprises me a little bit. You would expect somebody like him to be a much better rim protector, or especially when you look at him just on the tape, his athleticism, he's not slow laterally. I think he actually has pretty decent feet for somebody his size. He should be better the ninth percentile defensively and then obviously if we're talking about what everyone wants out of the quote-unquote modern day big man anything that we're doing as far as talking about his jump shot or, or how he fares outside of like 10 to 12 feet that's all projection at this point there's really no statistical evidence right now that he can spread the floor certainly within his first few years in the league any of that like i said is projection now if you're able to start tapping into some of that playmaking that I know is in there within his first few years in the league, obviously, if he continues to round out his back to the basket game, provides the effort level that you saw from him in North Carolina, where he was running the floor, being that ring running threat was in the 72nd percentile scoring at a transition offense. And then obviously, if he's rebounding the ball at a high level, um, I I don't have his per 40-minute numbers in front of me, but if you look at his rebounding totals per 40 minutes, I think it was like over 15 or 16 rebounds a game. So if he's giving that level of effort, if you're getting that kind of production on the boards, now you're starting to piece together a role for him where he can at least get himself on the court and start developing some of those other parts of his game. So if you're just looking purely at the numbers or you watch him on like a bad day on the tape, you're probably not looking at him as like a tier four kind of guy, somebody who could potentially go in the first round or somebody I give a first round grade to. But if you encompass everything, if you look at everything in total, I think that Dayron Sharp certainly has a wonderful case to, to go in the first round and be one of those big men who a team could absolutely value and want to definitely have in the court at some point in the rotation. Ayo Dosunmu. Guard out of Illinois, 6'5 guard, was a junior, definitely had, like, don't get me wrong, the guy had a really good college season this year. Averaged 20 points, six rebounds, five assists per game. Shooting splits actually um, check out well too in terms of overall shooting. So we shot 49% from the field, 39% for three, 78% from the free throw line. The turnover number scares me. So they're between these two tiers. There's three guys that I'm talking about today that had that averaged over three turnovers a game. IO was actually the worst of the three at 3.3 turnovers per game. um He did finish in the 71st percentile offensively and the 70th percentile defensively. The main questions for IO are is he a point guard? And if he is a point guard, how much playmaking responsibility do you want to be funneling through him on the majority of nights, right? How much responsibility do you want to give him? So, His best strength is that he is a really athletic guard, quick dynamo, scored in the 84th percentile in terms of scoring out of transition offense. His passing in certain play types also intrigues me. He was in the 80th percentile in isolations, including passes, and the 87th percentile in pick and rolls, including passes. So I do like seeing both of those numbers. It's not that he can't pass the ball. It's more or less when he gets really, really excited and he tries to crash into the teeth of the defense. He doesn't have the tightest handle, so he's going to cough up the ball at times. And that comes back to, again, something of volume. If you're not setting him up to score in easier play types, if you're not getting him easier looks, and he has to do more and more self-creation, or he has to do a lot more freelance creation for others out of design sets, I don't know if you're going to get the results that you want from him him being a point guard that you're looking to draft in the first round. I think if you're bringing him into the NBA, you're letting him play minutes to get accustomed to the NBA game, but you're primarily looking at him to have an impact in the backcourt defensively, hit open shots when he has them, obviously get the ball, push the pace and transition, and put pressure on an opposing defense that way. That's how you get him on the court from day one. And then at that point, obviously, he can get better at shooting from the outside and being more of a well-rounded scorer. And then, as I mentioned, getting better at cutting down those turnovers. And then that's, that's what's going to definitely bring out more of his innate passing ability that I think he does have. It's just taken him longer than some other first round point guards to definitely find a better balance between playmaking and scoring and then still tightening up that handle to make sure that they're not losing any possessions offensively. But IO is still someone who I don't want to be, I don't want to be too high on him, but I also don't want to be too low on him. He doesn't deserve to precipitously fall down boards into like the forties or like anything like that. Like if you're, if you're taking him anywhere, like, I don't know, like 25, anywhere between like 25 to 35, I think you're definitely getting banged for your buck with Io, And he's somebody that's at least worth having in your rotation. And then maybe he does end up becoming a starting point guard or a starting two guard down the road because of how effective he can be on both ends of the floor, not necessarily just on one end or the other. Brandon Boston Jr., the wing out of Kentucky, at one point was projected as the number two overall pick by ESPN. That didn't happen that way. Um, six, seven wing prospect really struggled offensively at the beginning of the year, couldn't drive and score at the basket nearly as easily as he was able to in high school. I think that really killed off a lot of his confidence. And then the shooting numbers just dropped from there. Um, only shot close to 36% from the field, 30% from three he had a player efficiency rating of 13.2 and a true shooting percentage of 44.7 that's not going to get it done it was in the 39th percentile both total offense and total defense didn't show that he could handle the ball and playmake and score out of more designed Sets. Like he's not someone you're going to want to run a lot of pick and roll through. He was only in the ninth percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler he was only in the 30th percentile and in, in, in spot up possessions, 19th percentile off screens and the 25th percentile off handoff. So really what you're trying to do, if you're drafting Brandon Boston is you're, you're coming into this thinking that he's going to need the time to develop, but really more than necessarily build out some of his skill set that we saw in high school, letting him get more comfortable doing those same types of things in the NBA, especially as he continues to, to add and put on more weight and definitely get stronger, you need to rebuild his confidence first and foremost to even start going down that road. So that probably means that Brandon Boston someone who I would definitely let play in the G League for the majority of his rookie year, get him exposed to the, the, the tempo and the speed of the NBA game. Let him get exposed to more of the physicality in the G League. Let him go up against hungry guys who are also looking to get into the NBA. So you know that he's not playing in meaningless basketball. There are still good players in the G League and he will have battles on any given night against somebody who sees him as this blue chip type prospect and they're going to want to pick on him a little bit in the G League. He's he's not going to get a free ride there by any means. So let him the more talented player more likely than not get some reps against guys like that. Let him prove himself to himself and let him build that confidence back to the point where you find one or two things that he can do on an NBA floor. Maybe he, he, maybe he improves the jump shot. Maybe he becomes a much better spot-up player. Maybe he gets more comfortable in catch-and-shoot situations. The three-point percentage improves to a point where you can put him in a certain area on the court and you can get him the ball if he's open and he can shoot and he can make that. And he can see the ball go through the hoop multiple times in the NBA. And that's, again, part of how he gets that confidence back. That's really how you have to approach Brandon Boston at this point. You have to be patient with him. I, I still think he's going to go in the first round. I think somebody towards the back end of the first is going to take a chance on him. Um, and, and you're hearing a lot of the same buzz with another guy that I have in my tier four, which would be Zaire Williams. I think a lot of people have come back around him as uh, on him as well, and we'll get into him a little bit later in this tier. But yeah, those two guys, especially, you got to be patient with them. You have to let them marinate a little bit, let them get their confidence back that they had previously in high school, and, and let them grow in in their own skin a little bit. Cam Thomas, LSU guard. One of the best buckets in this entire draft class. Can't say enough about his ability to score the basketball in a variety of ways. Three-level score, pure bucket. I saw Rashad Phillips have him actually as the number five or, or a top five prospect on his board. That surprised me a little bit. But when you look at what's been working, especially... Nowadays in the NBA playoffs, having these guys who can create their own shot from the perimeter at any given time, being able to hit step back mid range jumpers, being very comfortable in the mid range, being able to hit an open three, create a three, step back three, you're able to hit those kinds of shots. You absolutely have a place in today's NBA that is so perimeter oriented in terms of its scoring. And Cam Thomas rates out in a lot of different areas. If you look past just the bare shooting splits of forty. Point six percent from the field and thirty-two and a half percent from three. If you look a little deeper than that, he was in the eighty-seventh percentile in terms of overall offense. He was in the seventy-second percentile scoring out of isolation, the ninety-fifth percentile scoring out of pick-and-roll sets as the ball handler, seventy-six percentile in spot-up offense. And then some people have a big critique on him, and it is technically a question of mine too. But I'm not holding him. I I don't necessarily question it as much as some other people. He was in the 70th percentile in isolations, including passes, and the 89th percentile in pick and rolls, including passes. People say, well, all he wanted to do was shoot the basketball. Can he pass the ball? Will he pass the ball? Is he a willing passer? Or is he just going to completely tank an offense and just ruin possessions because he pulls up for this long two with a hand in his face all the time? Something that people, I think, forget about LSU is that it's never exactly been a program of much structure, especially this past year, where it's pretty much any one of Cam Thomas or Trenton Watford or um, Javante Smart, like they all pretty much took their turns of, we're going to clear everybody out to the weak side and we're going to let you take over in isolation and we're going to see if you can get us a bucket. That way we can go down the other end or we're going to play our tails off on defense and and even some of that effort was questionable from night to night and we'll get out in transition and we'll score... Fast paced that way. There wasn't a lot of designed offense run at LSU, not a lot of reliable playmaking in other areas of the floor besides whatever Javante Smart gave them. Cam Thomas wasn't always asked to make a play for somebody else. Generally, that came from if there was a pick and roll set called, it was a design set that required either a score out of that play type or for you to be able to make the right read. That's an area where he was able to pass the ball. But other than that, it was a lot of freelance offense. And if you give the ball to a scorer as confident as Cam Thomas, somebody who literally set records at one of the most prestigious high school programs in the country, Oak Hill Academy, like he's probably going to shoot the basketball. There's, there's not much else to say about it. He has that much faith and belief in himself. And when you look at the number of different ways he can score the basketball, his um, close to historic free throw attempt rate for a freshman in college and the fact that he was able to convert from the free throw line, 88%. There's so many effective ways that he can score the basketball that I don't blame him for having the confidence in himself that he did. And the other thing, too, is that he, everyone wants to kind of kill his defense as well. I think that once he gets to the NBA and, and becomes a lot more disciplined on that end, I don't think he's going to be terrible because he actually wasn't terrible in college. He was in the 52nd percentile um in total defense so it's not like it's not like he was a complete loss for cause and and i think everybody when they get into the nba certainly has to work on their off-ball defense but i i think as long as he's a little more attentive and he gives effort on each possession even when he's on an island um in different situations he's not an elite athlete but he's a competitive kid everything i hear about cam thomas is that he's a really good and he's a bright kid so I want to bet on those guys, those guys who have the confidence and the belief in themselves to go out there and do the work to get better on both ends. I want to bet on those guys. And Cam Thomas is one of those guys that I want to bet on. Now, I see him as more of a scoring specialist. I'm not so sure how much playmaking and or defense I'm going to get out of him from night to night. So that's why I have him in tier four and not tier three, but I'm not ruling out that he could be like a tier three type of player, like a guaranteed first through fourth option on a really good or a championship level team. I'm not going to rule that out for one of the best bucket getters in the entire draft class. So I have him in tier four because at some point I have to draw the lines on these tiers with some of these guys, but it would not shock me in the slightest if he had elite production at some point at the next level. Chris Duarte, the Oregon wing. I've seen a lot more positive projection out of this young man over the last few weeks. Some people have him mocked as a lottery pick. I'm not sure if I would go that far. I have him in tier four for for a reason. I don't think he plays good enough defense, and he's that great of an athlete. To definitely warrant a starting spot on a really good team he's somebody else kind of like a cam thomas i see him as like a spot starter slash a scoring specialist in the nba but he's certainly going to play an important role for for somebody even that's even if that's from like the seventh to the ninth spot in a rotation he's going to get buckets and provide offensive value for somebody he scored 17 points per game this past year at oregon some of his shooting numbers Are literally ridiculous. So he shot 53% from the field, 42% from three, 81% from the free throw line. He had a player efficiency rating of 26.6, a true shooting percentage of 65.7, was in the 95th percentile in total offense. And you can quite literally go through all of the different synergy categories, the different play types, the different types of shots, his shooting percentages within those types of shots. Pretty much his whole his whole line on my spreadsheet here is like almost green. Um and, and the only yellow that comes on, on my spreadsheet here is really from his defensive marks. I, I don't think he's a good defender. I think he's somebody who if you get him on an island, you can kind of have your way with him, despite him being despite him having good positional size for what he's likely to play that wing spot. I I'd probably pigeonhole him more into the two than the three, but I think he's long enough and big enough to play the three. Certainly is a competitive player in his own right. I loved watching his film session the other day with Mike Schmitz. I think he has a good head on his shoulders. He clearly knows what he's doing from an offensive standpoint in terms of his role and what it can be in the NBA. I, I, I'm definitely rooting for the guy. But when you think about starter level players, they can't, they can't sink you on defense. They can't be like zeros to to, to complete negatives, right? They they have to at least be able to hold their own on some possessions for them to warrant starters level minutes or else your your coach is probably going to go to somebody else on the bench who's not going to completely tank the defense. And it's not like he's playing a position like point guard where you kind of look around and you're like, well, how many point guards in the NBA that are that are above average to to anywhere from above average to elite offensively? How many of them are actually like really, really good and valuable on the defensive end? Obviously, that number is going to be smaller, but in an area of the court that relies much more on being able to get a stop at some point, like on the wing when there's so many other good wings in the NBA, you can't get obliterated on every single possession. You have to provide some kind of stopgap value. So if Duarte proves me wrong and he improves defensively, like... I think even getting up to like the 45th percentile defensively in the NBA would be a massive, massive, massive leap and one that would warrant him playing starters level minutes or having a starting role on a really good team. That's the type of improvement I think he would have to make to get there, even if he never gets there defensively. He's still someone that you value having in your rotation and somebody who you want to play his fair share of minutes in a second unit or mix him in with the starters, however you want to stagger your rotation, he's still definitely worth drafting in the first round. I just don't know if I'd have him as like a top 20 guy for sure or like a lottery pick. But um, an older guy that brings plenty of experience with him, again, he has a good head on his shoulders. I'm definitely rooting for him, and I think he will have at least some level of success offensively in the NBA. Corey Kispert. We mentioned him at the start of this podcast six foot seven senior forward out of Gonzaga played one hell of a role for a team that went to the national championship game um played about thirty two minutes per night, almost nineteen points per game, five rebounds a game his shooting numbers we can go through he's kind of like Duarte. we can spend our time going through a lot of these but He pretty much checks out green everywhere, 53% from the field, 44% from three, almost 88% from the free throw line, a 67.4 true shooting percentage. Duarte had a 65.7 true shooting percentage, like I said. These are outlier type of true shooting percentages for wings in the NBA. If you've got like a guard or a wing who has like a 59 to a 62 true shooting percentage, you're probably pretty happy with that because it shows that he can score effectively in multiple different areas. If you get a guy who can be as efficient as somebody like a Chris Duarte or a Courtney Kispert offensively, and you're able to plug that guy in somewhere in your rotation, you're ecstatic about that because that's somebody else that the defense has to pay attention to. And that's less pressure that can be taken off of your, your first or your second options on your really good team that you're trying to build. But he was in the 99th percentile in total offense. Something that isn't talked about enough. Everyone wants to look at Kispert as like the shooting specialist. And that is the category I have him in. But if he has to do something off the bounce in a pinch, it's not like he's completely incapable of pounding the ball away for a few dribbles and making something happen on the move. He was in the 87th percentile in pick and roll offense as the ball handler. Um he was in the 95th percentile overall in spot up looks. He was in the 97th percentile scoring out of transition offense. So that means that again, he's another one of those guys that's always moving around the court. I've definitely talked about that on this podcast before how he's generally not standing around on offense in the half court and he's not not taking his time getting up the floor, filling the lane properly, sprinting to that corner and getting himself open for a look and transition offense either. Um, definitely somebody who's always looking to move and be a factor. Um, but he was also in the 86th percentile on shots that we would consider runners. So like a push shot or like a floater, he has touch in that painted area where he's not, if you run him off the three point line, it's not like he's completely incapable of making a play, is he an elite level shot creator with a deep, <laughs> a, a, a deep creation bag? Does he have an elite handle? Like no, he doesn't have those things. But that doesn't mean that he's not, he can't be a valuable player in the NBA. That shooting specialists like that shouldn't be in high demand. If if he's not taken in the lottery, he's probably being taken in the middle of the first round. So just because I have him in this tier, just like a Davion Mitchell, just like another guy who I'm gonna talk about i'm trying to save him for a little later that doesn't mean that i would shun anyone who's taking some of these guys in the lottery it's just where i have them by how i'm categorizing their role in the nba but getting an elite tier four player sometimes is a little more valuable than taking a swing on on somebody who i had marked as in like a tier three you know if you don't trust your developmental staff enough if you need somebody who can contribute a little quicker Be more of an instant impact guy when he's first coming into the league. Then you look at somebody like a Corey Kispert or a Davion Mitchell, who I'll transition into right now. Um, Certainly had a great year. Again, another older player. We have three older players in a row between Duarte, Kispert, and Davion Mitchell. But that doesn't mean that they can't get better in the NBA and improve at what they've already shown they can do. Um, And Davion Mitchell had an excellent season for Baylor in his own right, shooting 51% from the field, almost 45% from three. The 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 main mark on his shooting stat line being the 64% free throw shooting hasn't hasn't ever really been a good free throw shooter, and that's given people a lot of questions, particularly in the fact that he wasn't necessarily a, a, a good jump shooter before his breakout year at Baylor, where he went nuts. He was hitting jump shots from all over the floor, both in transition as well as in more designed sets in the half court or off the catch is that going to definitely translate into the NBA? If it does, I'm not ruling anything out in terms of him potentially becoming a starter-level talent. But he does the majority of his damage with the ball in his hands, so that means that if he's a starter in your lineup, you're probably playing him at the point guard spot. He did better in passing play types this past year at Baylor, but I question how much of a floor general... He actually is. I question how much offensive responsibility you definitely want to funnel through him. It's still my belief that when I go back and I look at the Baylor tape, even though Davion Mitchell brought the ball up the floor, a lot of times for Baylor had the ball in his hands a lot. As soon as that ball swung around to Jared Butler, there was a much better sense of calm to that offense. And I just feel like the team in general flowed a lot better when Butler was in control of the offense versus Davion Mitchell making every single play down the stretch for that team. So it's it's really because Butler played with a sense of pace. He's much better at starting and stopping. Mitchell can definitely shake some people off balance. He can start and stop. But every time I go back and watch more of the tape, he's generally playing in one gear, and that's that's really fast. And if he can master in the NBA, how to start, stop, change gears much better, and that helps the pace, the overall sense of calm within the offense, and everything isn't necessarily feeling erratic, then again, he could be a much better player than I'm projecting. And he and at that point, he would belong in a tier three. Generally, especially guys who are coming into the league at like 21, 22, 23 years old, that's that's usually something you either have at this point or you're probably not going to have it. It's one of those... Inexplainable. I don't want necessarily want to call it an intangible, but it's like one of those not often as learned skills in, in some of these players. Being able to play at different speeds and change speeds effectively and, and have that kind of command over an offense. That's generally not what's happening later in a career versus earlier. So that's why I have Davion more in this tier four. Joel Ayayi, the Gonzaga guard, one of my favorite players in this entire draft class. If you follow me over here at Draft Deeper, you know that, that I got a thing for Jawali and there's a good reason for it. Um, I've gone through some of the numbers before, but I'll go through them again. So the, the counting numbers, the counting averages, points per game, 12, 6.9 rebounds a game, 2.7 assists per game, those aren't going to blow you away. But when you go into some of the synergy numbers, his case becomes a lot clearer. Almost 58% shooting from the field, from three-point range, 78% from the free throw line, a 665 true shooting percentage. So again, another player that, um, yeah, he's not a high-volume scorer by any means, but when he does get the ball in his hands to do something with it, it's generally pretty effective. Was in the 96th percentile in total offense, 99th percentile in scoring out of the pick and roll as the ball handler. Um, That's a really key number for me. Because I think if you're looking at drafting Joel Ayayi, he's not just somebody who can play exclusively off the ball, especially in a second unit. I think at different times for a second unit, he can run the point and and, and initiate offense for you. So that's that's the type of player that's very valuable to have off the bench. Um, He was in the 95th percentile this year in spot-up scoring, 93rd percentile scoring off of cuts. And I've seen some other people post about that on Twitter. He Definitely is the best back backdoor cutter in the draft, I, I think without question, it's by a very wide margin, and I think it was Daniel Olinger shout out to him on Twitter who definitely put that um that he thought that in his opinion he was the best backdoor cutter in the draft, and that's a very valuable weapon to have out of your role players. um It's just another layer that gets thrown in the offense you, you you're watching it this year with the Phoenix Suns. they have so many good backdoor cutters. Mikael Bridges is probably their best backdoor cutter. um Devin Booker's willing to do that on occasion. cam Johnson does that on occasion like when you have multiple players in your lineup that look to exploit as many advantages as possible against the opposing defense if you're playing a team that is a little lazy on defense isn't always watching their backs these are things that can be exploited you can get you can squeeze the easy buckets out of a game and when you do make mistakes on the offensive end some of those easy looks that you get on possessions beforehand can make up for some of those mistakes. So having a guy as attentive, as smart, as aware on the court, as a Yai is, that's so clutch to have, particularly in a second unit. Um, and then you look at his shooting numbers across the board, he was in the 93rd percentile on jump shots overall, 86th percentile on runners, 80th percentile around the basket, um, finishing 63.2% of those looks, 81st percentile on catch and shoot shots, and the 96th percentile in all jumpers off the dribble. Um, he doesn't necessarily have a mid-range game, so if you kind of if you kind of get him caught in, in, in that mid-range area, anywhere between like I don't know, fourteen to seventeen feet, he doesn't have the best pull-up jumper from from that range, and he doesn't have the best um, touch on some of those like short shots around the basket. But I don't know how many times he's going to get them himself caught in those positions. Generally, it's he's either shooting it off the catch, or if he's driving to the basket. He's generally either dumping the ball off or he's going all the way and looking to finish around the basket where I said, again, he does mark out really well there. So um, the, the, the biggest reason why I have him in this tier, even though I love him so much and I wouldn't have him in like a tier three, he's despite having really good length for his size, he's not good defensively. Um, he, he, he's more of a frail guard. He doesn't hold up well against size. He was only in the 40th percentile in terms of total defense, playing within more of a team scheme. Um, a lot of those Gonzaga guys weren't always the best man to man defenders, but they communicated well. I value that in the Yayi as well. He's going to communicate with his teammates, but if you get him on an Island or he gets put on a bigger matchup, he's not always going to be able to hold his own. And so that's really the biggest thing for me that holds him back from being one of those Role players in your starting lineup that you can count on to do all the dirty work, but if he's sinking you too much in one area, that's probably his biggest weak point. So he's another guy like Duarte. If he improves defensively, he can add massive value offensively um, to a really good team. But regardless, he should still be in a rotation, either as a six man or like a seven through nine spot in a rotation. I think Ei is going to be that good in the NBA. Josh Primo, Alabama guard, six five. Ended up getting a lot more minutes in starting time in like the second half of the year. But he always intrigued me because how many 6'5", 6'6", combo guards do we have in the NBA who offer as much promise shooting the basketball and can in time probably become decent level playmakers um, and be able to handle running an offense? Now, if you go back and you look at the numbers, for Primo this past year as a freshman guard. A lot of his passing numbers, they they are not good. Some of them are are honestly pretty putrid. However, he wasn't always asked to be the primary point guard on offense. He didn't have a ton of offensive responsibility always thrown at him. And I don't think that he was definitely comfortable operating in those sets during his, his first stints in college basketball either. Um, And and that's going to be something that if you're drafting him, you're betting on that that will improve down the road and he'll be able to at least make the right plays within basic reads and he won't sink you on that end. It's not either he takes a jump shot or he passes the ball out to to somebody else and you got to rerun a set within your offense. You're looking for him to actually make a play off the bounce and you're looking for how does he hold himself accountable? How does he operate within those situations? Is he comfortable handling the ball for extended stints? And in the combine, that was one thing I really wanted to watch from him as he was playing in that combine scrimmage that he did. How comfortable was he bringing the ball at the floor and initiating offense for others? And even though he didn't, he even though he didn't light the world on fire in terms of dishing out a bunch of assists during that scrimmage, he still looked really comfortable handling the ball and he didn't look afraid of the moment. And he had a few good moments scoring the basketball, even off the bounce during that scrimmage. So that's, that's really what I wanted to see from him. And again, I've said for a while, I think he's going to go in the first round. If he does, you're making that bet on him. And I think he's worth making a bet on, but he's not someone you're looking at to contribute immediately in the NBA from day one. He's probably a few years away from really making an impact for an NBA team, but guys combo guards at his size with some of his shooting ability and his promise you want to take those guys towards the back end of the first round. You want to stash them away for a little bit, let them spend time with your developmental team so that by like year three, when they're ready to pop, you look back and you say, that was a very valuable pick that we made back then. And we're glad that we made that investment in that player. And I definitely think Josh Primo is worth making an investment in. Really, you could, you could say the same thing about JT Thor, who's the next guy on our list. Um, Another freshman, 6'9", 203 pound um, forward out of Auburn. Some people are classifying him as a wing. I think if you're projecting JT Thor to be a wing, then you're 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 looking pretty far out. Um he shot 44% from the field, but he only shot 29.7% from three-point range, 74% from the free throw line. He was in the 65th percentile in total offense and only the 17th percentile in total defense. Um, he doesn't necessarily have an area by offensive play types that you can that he really hung his hat on besides um put backs on like the offensive glass but it wasn't necessarily an exceptional passer off the bounce um a lot of his shooting numbers in terms of jump shooting he was only in the 26th percentile um in, in total jump shots was in the 14th percentile on catch and shoot looks the biggest thing that people come back to right i see this all the time in clips on twitter the reason why jt thor has skyrocketed up some people's boards is because every now and then you go back and you watch him on film and he has that play where he's like dribbling a few times between his legs. Then all of a sudden he just steps back along the baseline or on the wing and he's like hitting this step back jump shot, whether it's a long two or he's even stepped back and hit some threes. Um, That kind of shot making ability at his size and then also his athletic talent, his coordination um, on drives and transition when he's getting to the basket, like. That whole type of package is really intriguing for some people. I just caution against taking him with, with a first round pick, like, like a, like a mid first round pick or even a lottery pick and thinking that he's going to be an immediate contributor right away in the NBA. And he's going to be able to do some of those shots and make some of those shots from day one. I caution against that level of thinking. Is he a really intriguing player who can be worth a first round pick as somebody who developed for the future? Absolutely. I like JT Thor. I thought, I thought that he was the second best player on that, on that Auburn team last year outside of Sharif Cooper. Um, I, I know a lot of people like Flanagan and Flanagan's going to be somebody that I value in next year's draft. But in terms of who impressed me more when I was going back and watching some Auburn film, JT Thor 100% stands out. Um, but he he's not a good defender right now. He's, he's arguably poor, a poor defender for someone his size and he doesn't bring enough efficient offensive value to warrant that much playing time within his first year in the league. So he's more of a project player, but certainly an intriguing talent, somebody to look at in the first round um, if, if you're looking at building out a team down the road. Miles McBride, West Virginia guard, six foot two with almost a 6'9 wingspan, so close to a plus-7 wingspan um, if you're playing the the ESPN drinking game on NBA draft night, you want to want to get your shots out for when somebody says wingspan. Here you go. I just did it on my podcast. Um, but some of his measurables are pretty impressive. I don't think he has any standout shooting skills or like any any necessarily standout offensive abilities to write home about. He just doesn't have many quote unquote bad weaknesses. And that's that's really a big thing that's desirable about him. Obviously, he played for Bob Huggins at West Virginia. He's competitive on the defensive end. Somebody who, when you're going back and watching film, he's generally communicating with teammates on the defensive end. He's competitive. He's tough as nails. He can be one of the better point-of-attack defenders at the guard spot in this whole draft class. And then when you throw in some of the shot-making, 43% from the field, 41% from three-point range, 81% from the line, You go back and you watch some of the tapes, some of the shots that he was able to hit off the bounce. You're like, why isn't this guy valued as like a higher first round pick? I don't know if he's going to be able to hit some of those same shots in the NBA to some of the same efficiency. And I also don't think that he's a natural um, playmaker outside of your very basic design sets. I don't know how much freelance playmaking he's going to be able to offer in the NBA for asking him to run a point guard position full time and be a starter. So that's why... I val- I definitely value him as like a bench guard in the NBA. Don't get me wrong. I just don't know how much offensive responsibility you want to throw at him. And I said similar words about uh, Trey Mann when we talked about him on the last podcast, how he's not a natural playmaker outside of design pick and roll sets yet, but he offers a level of shot making that I think is going to translate better, um, at least from day one than Miles McBride. I think he has an upside there. And that's why I would value Trey Mann over somebody like Miles McBride. But I can definitely see McBride going in the first round, again, because of what he brings from a defensive standpoint and the fact that he doesn't have glaring weaknesses in his offensive game. I just question how high his ceiling is offensively. And if he's definitely a starting point guard in the NBA, I think I'd be much more comfortable bringing him off of my bench. Nashana Highland, Bones Highland, out of VCU, the 6'3 guard. Um, again, another guy with a, with a pretty plus wingspan, six, nine and a quarter wingspan just by measuring it around six, two, six, three, um, 19 and a half points per game for VCU last year, 4.7 rebounds, 2.1 assists, almost 45% from the field, 37% from three, 86% from the free throw line has some pretty interesting numbers, almost a 60% true shooting percentage. That's a good mark that I like to see. Like I said earlier from guards, 83rd percentile in total offense. 85th percentile in isolation scoring, 96th percentile in spot up, 73rd percentile on cuts and 86th percentile scoring out of transition offense. He's another one of those guys, microwave bucket. Um really good range on his jump shot, deep range on his pull-up three-point shot. My concerns about him, I don't know how much of a natural playmaker that Bones is necessarily either, and I'm not quite sure if he's efficient enough off the ball right now to warrant him playing like a starting two guard spot um so he rates out in the 92nd percentile on on catch and shoot jump shots that's great but i'm not in love with how he approaches cutting to the basket i'm not in love with his finishing around the basket in general i'm not that in love with like a floater like a mid-range game from him I see him as more of a perimeter-oriented specialist in the NBA, someone who's going to thrive on making shots from range because he's going to pull defenses so far out that eventually he's going to find that comfort level, like that sweet spot to be able to shoot from wherever outside of a certain range, and he's going to make those shots, and that's going to be the primary way he provides offensive value. But like that microwave type of long-range shooter you know, somebody who you can compare to, to like an Emmanuel quickly, but the difference between the and quickly is that I'm not as convinced of, of, of bones Highlands floater at, at nearly as much as I am of quickly's who can extend his floater out to like the free throw line. He has different ways of scoring off the bounce. If he's pushed out of his three point spot and he has to make a, make a play on the move. Um, so that's really my main question mark around bones Highland, but there's, there's no doubt. That he's going to be a really good bucket getter um, in the NBA from range, and he's going to be able to provide some instant offense for for a team. So he probably is going late first round at this point. I loved everything I saw at the combine. I love how competitive he was. I've loved any of the interviews he's done so far, especially his one at the combine with Mike Schmitz. There are so many things that go into scouting that I don't always have the intel on. But when you do get those tidbits, whether you're watching a game closely and you're you're, you're watching a player who's very receptive and responsive to coaching, either by a coach on the sidelines or by his teammates, or you can just tell out of an interview how much he loves the game, how much he loves to play the game of basketball, like. Those are things that you can't underestimate and undervalue. Like Bones Highland loves to play the game of basketball. I know how much of a love for the game he has. I know that he's going to put in the work that he needs to to get better. I don't know how much better he's going to get, but I know that he's going to come in and work his tail off every day and he's going to be a positive influence in that locker room, regardless of what his role is, whether he's a starter or whether he's a bench bucket getter. He's going to be a positive player from day one. And I value guys like that. I know that shout out to Simon Rath and Bones Highland is one of his boys. Um, he definitely loves bones and he sees a lot of the same chemistry type things. Um, and, and that attentiveness to the game overall from him as well. And then him and I have had some of those conversations in private and yeah, that, that stuff's going to sell me on a prospect every single time. I don't undervalue that stuff. Raquan Gray, shout out to coach David Thorpe one of his one of his Florida State guys. So he is a big Raekwon Gray fan, and for good reason, one of the more unique prospects in this draft. 6'8", 269 pounds, um, averaged 11.9 points per game, 6.4 rebounds, 2.2 assists. Listen, he can do a lot of different things off the bounce, playing out of pick and roll, making plays for other people. He's one of the most imposing physical presences on the wing or the forward spot. I think we're going to find in this draft class. I've talked about this before on the pod. What's really unique about Gray is how vertical he can be for his size and how well he moves his feet laterally. You don't expect somebody his size to be able to keep up with perimeter matchups or guards quite like he does. And that's what makes him such a unique defensive player. Um, I've compared his offensive game if the jump shot checks out right. A lot of how he approaches making plays for others, the pace that he plays at um, some of the stuff he likes to do off the bounce. I've compared a lot of that stuff to Boris Diao, but defensively his, his lightning quick hands, again, the way he shifts his feet laterally and how he's able to contain multiple matchups and then defend inside as well, because of his size and his bulk and his strength. Coach Thorpe thinks he's PJ Tucker 2.0. And I can't necessarily disagree with that at all. I don't, I don't know exactly if I definitely see that from him. That's why I have him as like a tier three guy, somebody who I can see being drafted either in the late first or early second. But if he ends up being PJ Tucker 2.0, then I definitely have a value too low, and he would 100% be a tier three guy because PJ Tucker is someone who you see time and time again valued on really good NBA teams. Has certainly played his role in helping the Milwaukee Bucks go far during this playoff run. Um, he's just, he's just one of those presences presences you want to have in your locker room. Um, somebody who's going to bring toughness to a starting unit. Somebody who's going to encourage everyone around him to be better. And you see some of that, you see some of that vocalism out of gray, when you go back and watch some of the Florida state tape. So those are things, again, I don't want to underrate from, from Raekwon Gray. And that's why that he's definitely somebody I think that deserves to be drafted in, in the early second round, if not the first round he would 150% have a definite first round grade for me. If some of the shooting come came around or, or comes around um, his shooting numbers from the perimeter are not great. That I, I hate saying that shooting is a swing skill for a player. I feel like that phrase and and, and that wording in general, shooting is a swing skill. I feel like that's way overused um, when, when we're evaluating prospects, but it really is the truth for gray. If he's even like a 35, 36% three point shooter, on like catch and shoot looks, doesn't necessarily have to do everything in terms of creating his own shot off the bounce. But if he can just hit open catch and shoot shots with enough consistency, then everything he el- everything else he does on the floor warrants potentially big time minutes for him. So that's why I see him as like uh, more of like a sixth man type player, somebody who's like a spot starter. But yeah, that 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 that's my evaluation on Raquan Gray, and he's somebody who. I'm very curious to see his outcome in the NBA and how he turns out. Trey Murphy, the third, this is that third guy I was talking about who, if I was going to make some adjustments to my tiers and I was going to add a few guys from tier four into tier three, Trey Murphy, I think might even be over Corey Kispert and Davion Mitchell at the top of that list. Um, and, and it's really when you go back and you dig through some of the numbers, some of the film in terms of his shot making off the bounce in the mid range. I don't know how much of that I trust in volume at the NBA level. And that's why I didn't want to immediately call him like a first or a fourth option on like a really good or a championship level team. But analytically, he he blows the doors off 50 um, percent from the field, 43 percent from three almost 93% from the free throw line. So we're talking about a 50, 40, 90 guy. That's rare at any level in college, 67% true shooting, 99th percentile on total offense, 87th percentile in isolation offense, 91st percentile on spot up looks, 99th percentile on cuts, 97th percentile in transition scoring. So he didn't do a lot out of pick and roll type of offense, wasn't a post-up guy, wasn't a roller, wasn't somebody where you're running off screens or handoffs to make plays, wasn't, doesn't, doesn't have as diverse of an offensive profile as some of those other guys that, that I've talked about in like my tier three, but whatever he does do, he does it really, really well. And that can't, that can't be understated. Um, 94th percentile on all jump shots, 85th percentile scoring around the basket, 89th percentile scoring on catch and shoot looks. I mentioned his one weakness really to me is that I don't see him having as reliable of, of like a short to like a medium range shooting game, as well as anything he's doing like in the mid range off the dribble. I don't think that's reliable enough, at least right now in volume. But if you're asking him to play within himself and play to his strengths He's not somebody who's going to provide you tremendous defensive value, but he's, he's definitely above average. He's not going to sink you on that end of the floor, combined with how efficient he can be within himself on offense. Like, I, I know, shout out to Chuck over at Chucking Darts. I know that Trey Murphy's one of his favorite players in this entire draft class, and I, it would not shock me at all if somebody took him in the lottery. Would not shock me. I, I haven't gone back and looked at his numbers in a while, um I I've really only glanced through them before. I I had I had definitely watched enough tape on him at least in my opinion. I definitely caught like 2 to 3 Virginia games where I was evaluating multiple guys and I paid really close attention to Trey Murphy. So, he stuck out to me on film, but when you go back and look at some of the numbers, man, I I feel I feel bad if I don't have him in in, in my third tier. And I know I know Chuck is probably going to let me have it at some point on social media. I don't have him as like a tier 3 guy, but um He's very close. He's like right on the edge of that tier three, tier four conversation. Um, And and he's somebody I can definitely envision him having a long career in the NBA as long as he plays within himself and and he focuses on what he's good at offensively. Usman Garuba, 6'8", 220 pound forward out of Spain. One of the most versatile defensive prospects in this entire draft would not shock me in the slightest if he ended up guarding positions one through five at some point in the NBA. He is that unique, that special, that physical, that laterally quick of a defender. And really, when I evaluate Garuba, I don't see a lot of natural touch to his offensive game. I don't see him being this exceptional passer or mover of the ball or playmaker for others, even as some of those short roll sets. I know that shout out to Rafael Barlow. He loves Garuba's potential as a, as like a short roll type playmaker. I don't see great success for him offensively, but I do think he's capable enough as a role man, as somebody who runs the floor, like a madman in transition. Like he's probably going to be able to get you like somewhere between 10 to 11 points per game in the NBA. Um, really physical rebounder on both ends of the floor. His, his per forty numbers would definitely indicate that that he can be a double-digit rebounder. And I've said this for a while. Like if he if he's a 10 points, 10 rebounds, plus everything he gives you from a versatility standpoint on defense, whether he's playing a passing lane, getting a steal, um, going up for a block shy, coming over as a help defender from the weak side, um, taking a matchup individually one-on-one, guarding out on the perimeter, guarding in the post. Like Sure, he may not be an off the charts offensive player, but if you're getting so much value on the defensive end of the floor, and he's even if he's like a defensive specialist, I don't know if you draft a defensive specialist in the lottery, but I do know that you, that you take him somewhere from the mid first round to like the early second. You definitely draft that guy in that range, and again, this is like a a spot starter, or a specialist, or a fifth man type tier that we've been talking about here that's more of what I see from Muzman Garuba. I see him as a defensive specialist, but somebody that can definitely come in the game and impact the game right away from day one for an NBA team. And if he keeps developing his offensive game, if that jump shot comes around, if he's able to hit open shots close to the clip that he did um, this past year for Real Madrid, like a 34% three-point clip, if that translates to the NBA line, and if he can even improve that to like the 35 to 37% range, just like open catch and shoot looks, again, all the value he provides as a role man, like that can be a starter player down the road that could be like a tier three type of player, a one through four option on like a really good team, just given all the value that he brings to the table. Um, Again, just because I have somebody in a fourth tier, as we've talked about with multiple players here, that doesn't mean that I don't like them as prospects and I wouldn't take them somewhere, um, potentially even a little higher than I'm projecting in the first round. So Uzman Garuba, definitely somebody to keep an eye on next year in his rookie year. And then last but not least in tier four, I mentioned him earlier when I was talking about Brandon Boston, Zaire Williams, the Stanford wing, measuring in close to like six nine, six ten, potentially as like a two guard. That's insane. Um, again, a lot of the numbers will not bear out for him and really make a strong case for him. So he has a lot of a lot of marks, negative marks on, on, on some of his stat lines here that I have on my spreadsheet in front of me. But I don't want to go through all those numbers because I don't just want to pick on Zaire Williams. Um, same thing that I really didn't want to do a ton of with Brandon Boston. These are guys who were projected top 10 picks before the year. And there's a reason why they were projected top 10 picks because of some of the promise they showed in high school. And I think a lot of this, it's really, interesting. I was thinking about some of this today as I was prepping for the podcast is that Zaire Williams and Brandon Boston did a lot of things offensively, purely with the ball in their hands um, for, for Sierra Canyon and then some of the other sets of basketball that they played in. They weren't necessarily too focused on playing off the ball or refining their catch and shoot game, cutting to the basket, whatever the case may be. They weren't, they weren't necessarily brought up to be off ball type wings. They, they, they have, they have bags. They can handle the basketball. They can shoot off the, they can shoot off the bounce. They can create their own shot in the mid range. So they have things, especially at their size, that are really valuable and reasons why you would potentially value them as first round picks. But when they come into the NBA, they're not going to have that same level of freedom, especially now given the, fir- the freshman years that they had at kentucky and stanford respectively like that's not going to happen for them they're going to have to rebuild rebuild or rewire their thinking a little bit of how they're approaching the game offensively they're going to have to learn how to work better off the ball they're going to have to become more consistent shooters off the catch and off the move these are things they're going to be have to be able to do to provide offensive value to get themselves on the court to get minutes to get nba experience to eventually build out those other parts of the game and establish more confidence doing those other things, like I talked about with Brandon Boston, you have to rebuild and rewire them a little bit in terms of their thinking offensively. So um, the thing that Zaire Williams has for him that I wouldn't say that Brandon Boston had um, or or may have early on in his NBA career, Zaire Williams at least did not sink Stanford defensively, Um, was a competitive defensive player on the ball, obviously has the length to be disruptive in passing lanes. I think that he can actually be like an average defender, um, not that far down the road, As far as his NBA career is concerned, I think that not, not maybe not from day one, but I definitely think like at some point through his rookie year going into like his sophomore season, I think he can definitely impact the game for a team in a positive way, or at least around like like an average type impact defensively. So that is something that he has in his favor and something that, that, that would bode well for getting him on an NBA floor to continue developing. So now we move into tier five. So again, as I explained towards the beginning of this podcast, these are all players that I see as being like seventh through ninth guys on like a really good team down the road. So I'm not going to spend too much time going, going as in depth with some of the other guys that I've done at different points through these podcasts um, from like tiers five through seven. I'm going to try to move through some of these guys because a, a lot of these guys are older players. They're not necessarily freshmen or like G league night guys. A few of them are. Um, but, but they're guys who have been around and you kind of have a pretty good feel for their games at this point. And they haven't done anything to move the needle for me to get them up in in a tier or two above where they are here at tier five, or or even going down to the next pod that I'll do tier six, six and seven. So Aaron Henry wing prospect out of Michigan state. We, we know the story about Aaron Henry. Um, he he's, he's a really good athlete has great positional size can be a menace on the defensive end of the floor and matchups can probably guard in time two through four in the NBA just has not put it together consistently on the offensive end of the floor. Really weird offensive game. And I say that because he's actually at his best technically pulling up or creating something in like those mid range type of areas. So from like 12 to 17 feet out from the basket on the floor, hasn't always been the best finisher right at the basket unless he's going up for like a powerful dunk. And then his, his three point shooting has never been as consistent either off the catch or off the move or certain. I, I certainly wouldn't want him creating a whole bunch of three point shots for himself on like step back moves. He only shot 30% from three this past year. Um, so that's really what keeps him in like this tier five is like a seventh through ninth guy. I don't know if he holds enough offensive value to definitely be a starter for like a really good NBA team. But one of the only players on this list to have 1.3 steals and 1.3 blocks per game this past year, again, provides the majority of his value on the defensive end and on the boards for somebody his size. So that's a valuable player to have in a rotation, but it's not necessarily a starter. So that's why I have Aaron Henry here. Um, Aaron Wiggins, the Maryland wing, Um, man, he had a really good G League camp. Had a really good NBA draft combine, definitely did himself some favors showing some of his offensive versatility and what he's capable of doing on an NBA floor. Again, another guy, consistency just has not been there um, throughout his college career. Was a really hyped freshman coming in, somebody who people talked about as like, yeah, he should be on NBA draft radars. Kind of like what, what Tyler Rucker said on one of the earlier podcasts I did when we reacted to the Combine. Shout out to to backcourt violation. Aaron Wiggins was one of those guys who we thought he had promise in his freshman year, but never quite brought it around to a consistent level. Now, to his credit, he, he he's improved at least somewhat in terms of the shooting splits. 45% shooting from the field, 36% from three, 77% from the free throw line. He's not like this bad offensive player by any means. He's capable of doing a lot of different things on the floor. It's just, what are you going to get from him night to night? And when you have those more inconsistent type of wing players, those are the guys who you're comfortable bringing them off the bench for a certain amount of minutes per night, but not necessarily being like a starter or even as like a spot starter and more of your main rotation. So that's why I have Aaron Wiggins among these guys. Charles Bassey, Western Kentucky center. I don't hear enough about this guy to be perfectly honest. I know I only have him in a tier five. I don't have him in a tier four because I think he's definitely more limited offensively. I know we've shown examples that he can, you know, hit an outside shot. He did take three-point shots. He shot almost 31% from the three-point line this past year. But when you actually break down some of those shooting numbers and you go back and you watch some of the tape, he's another one of those big men. Everything we're projecting about him as far as his three-point shooting or stretching the floor for an NBA team, if that's exactly what it is. It's all theoretical. There's really no consistent evidence that he's going to be able to stretch the floor for an NBA team. So we're looking at pretty much an exclusively interior big man, but those guys can be valuable in the playoffs. I mean, we're seeing, and I'm not not comparing him to DeAndre Ayton. I'm not saying that he's as good of a player as DeAndre Ayton, but you're seeing how valuable the right player with enough of an athletic skill set, enough size to him, what that type of player can do if they're playing within themselves and playing up to their potential within their specific role. And in college, he averaged 18 points per game to almost 12 rebounds per game, um, shot 59% from the field, had a 32.6 player efficiency rating in college. That's absurd. 64% true shooting percentage, not the highest I've seen, From a big man shooting pretty much exclusively twos, but you throw in the fact that he did take any three-point shots at all, and he still comes away with a 64 percent shooting percentage. That's impressive. 93rd percentile on total offense, 85th percentile on total defense. So by total metrics, he was above the 85th percentile in both of those main categories that encompass everything. That's impressive. 92nd percentile on post-ups. 77 percentile on cuts, 79 percentile on putbacks off of offensive rebounds, and ninety-third percentile on offense translated uh, coming off of transition offense. Those are all really impressive numbers for somebody we're projecting as a backup big man in the NBA. And, and a big reason why somebody took him with a late first round pick wouldn't shock me. If he goes early second round, wouldn't shock me. Um, I don't think that the traditional style of big man like that is dead by any means. Charles Bassey, Dayron Sharp, two guys I'll talk about in a little bit. Jericho Sims, EJ Onu, who I get to talk about in this podcast, but I'll get to him in a second. These are all guys that aren't like the perfect picture of a modern day big man. Although EJ Onu has a shot, has a real chance to be, but those other three guys, they're more traditional big men. They're not bringing a ton of offensive versatility to the table. So you might not value those guys as first round picks, but I can definitely make an argument by the numbers and on the tape for a, verse, a versatile defensive big man and then bringing enough offensive value within his role with what he can do finishing at such an effective rate like a Charles Bassier. or even going down the list. I didn't mention him in that group. Nimaeus Keita, another one of those guys. You can make late first, early second round arguments for these guys and, and Bassey's probably my favorite out of all of them, to be perfectly honest, I have Dayron Sharp as a tier four guy because of his age. But if you're asking me all these guys in a vacuum, you know, age and and potential down the line and, and any upside you might attach to these guys, if 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 all of that's in a vacuum, who's the player you like the most? I'm actually probably picking Charles Bassian. I would love to have him on my team if I was running a team. Dyson Knicks, G-League point guard, six foot four, uh, Freshman-type point guard. Played 26 and a half minutes for the G League Ignite. 8.8 points per game, 5.3 rebounds and assists per game, respectively. Listen, his his core vision is some of the best from the point guard spot in this draft class. I don't think I've heard anybody say he's a bad passer or a bad distributor of the basketball. But his shooting was pretty bad from the point guard spot. 38% from the field, almost 18% from three-point range, 71% from the line. A 10.6 player efficiency rating during the G League bubble and a 48.1 true shooting percentage. Those those numbers are just not going to get it done. Um, and, and and we've had conversations at length when we had the Draft Act guys on Corey and Albert. We talked about the G League Ignite players at length, and we we touched on Dyson Knicks and how concerned we are um, about some of his weight management. How good of an athlete is he? Is he able to maintain? Some of his athleticism, can he keep the weight down for his NBA career? Put all those concerns to the side. That's all I'm going to say on that stuff. We've already talked about that at length. But if you can't shoot the basketball virtually at all from the point guard position, you're not going to be nearly as valued as you could be if you could. Um, and, and that's really what it comes down to. Can some of that stuff improve during his NBA career? Absolutely. Is he good enough to, to land himself a backup point guard job in the league because of his court vision? absolutely. But if he's nothing to write home about on defense and he can't shoot the basketball well, then there's your case right there. He's not going to be more than the backup point guard in the league. David Johnson, guard out of Louisville, 6'5", sophomore, pretty much looked at as a point guard at this point. Almost 13 points per game, six rebounds, three assists per game, 41% shooting from the field, 39% from three. That number did improve. Um, and then 70% from the free throw line. The problem is, is that 38.6% three point shooting number is deceiving. Um, he's, he's not a good, he's not a good shooter off the bounce. Doesn't create jump shots for himself. Well, nor execute those shots at a high level, really good at catch and shoot. I think he's in like the 92nd percentile and catch and shoot shots. And he shoots a good percentage that way. But when you factor in that, he's he's Again, he's not a natural passer of the basketball. Average 3.2 turnovers per game, so that's the second highest number among guys on this list for turnovers per game. Was in the 30th percentile offensively, 26th percentile defensively. Everybody looks at him, and he looks like an NBA guard, 6'5 with a 6'10 half wingspan. Decent amount of bulk to him at the guard spot. He looks like an NBA guard. Does he play effectively enough to be an NBA guard? I can definitely envision him being like a seventh through ninth man for an NBA team. Does he warrant more minutes as like a six man or even a starting role in the NBA? I don't think so at the point guard spot. And if all he ends up doing is catch and shoot three-point shooting and he's not able to create anything for himself? out of different play types or off the bounce, then why am I investing any more in him than like a, a, a an early to mid second round pick at most? So does he still have upside? Yes, he does. Can he cut down on the turnovers, improve some of his playmaking even within design sets and become a better shooter off the bounce and, and do a few more things outside of just pure catch and shoot? Three point, he can. Am I betting on him at this point that he's going to make enough improvement in those areas to board a higher pick I'm not making that bet but there are some people who still love David Johnson as an as an NBA prospect there are some people who still have him as a first round grade I'll let those people talk about him on social media and make their cases to you but I'm not I'm not gonna make that elevated of a case for David Johnson I have him I have him where I have him I debated even having him in like tier six which as I'll talk about in the next podcast is like a ninth or a tenth guy on a team, so we're really talking about like the back end of a rotation. I think he's a little better than that, but I'm not having him any higher than where I have him. EJ Onu, center out of Shawnee State, by no means a big time college prospect. However, one of the most interesting players when you dig into some of the numbers in this entire draft class from a center spot. When I talked about that, he's not the perfect picture of a modern day big man. He can potentially be pretty close. Um, 6'11 with a ridiculous seven, eight and a half wingspan. That's nuts. 57% shooting from the field, 40% from three, almost 75% from the free throw line and 4.6 blocks per game i understand that he's not coming from a major college he didn't play major college competition but he passes the eye test like sometimes when you go back and watch some of these guys who come from like a division two or division three school or you watch some of these guys that are coming going to be coming over to the states from overseas you can watch some of the film and you can tell who's ready to make it and who's been faking it this whole time right like you can get a feel for how this guy's going to do against better competition. And EJ Onoo, at least for me, passes the eye test. And if he passes the eye test in terms of his level of athleticism, his size, how he's going to fare against other NBA caliber big men, what he's going to be able to do on an NBA floor, if he passes the eye test, I'll damn tell you, the numbers sure as hell pass the test. 66 true shooting percentage, 97th percentile on total offense, 93rd percentile. In spot-up offense, 75th percentile off cuts, 71st percentile off putbacks, was in the 99th percentile scoring in transition. These are big-time numbers, folks. 84th percentile on all jump shots. As a big man, 84th percentile. 90th percentile around the basket, scoring at 70.7% finishing around the basket. 73rd percentile in catch-and-shoot shots, knocking down 39% of them. That's a really good place to be at if you're a big man in the NBA, everyone. Like, EJ Onu should not be slept on. He will 100% be drafted. Where he'll be drafted, I have no idea. I have him in a tier five because at least within his first two to three years in the league, I would envision him as more of like a seventh through ninth man in a rotation as he's brought up to speed more for the NBA game because he didn't play a lot of major competition in college. But at some point, I really think this guy's gonna be a real player. Um, and that's why I debated having him in like that tier four. I landed on him at tier five, but it wouldn't shock me if he definitely outperforms where I have him slotted. Cause yeah, he's he he's the real deal, folks. We've seen some some really good draft people on social media um do stories about him, write up profiles about him, share video clips. Like he's he's the real deal. I I'm I'm buying EJ Onu's stock. Shout out to to Stone Hansen, who keeps throwing out um EJ Onu hive everywhere on draft Twitter. I'm I'm a part of that hive, my friend. I'm with you. Greg Brown the third, Texas forward, Texas wing, what do you call him? I don't really know what you call him to be honest. I have him categorized as a forward. Wants to play like a wing. 6'9 with a seven-foot wingspan, 9.3 points per game, 6.2 rebounds, 0.4 assists. This is another guy, guys, I'm not going to go through all the numbers. I don't want to kill the kid. He's a really good kid. Everybody I've talked to behind the scenes says he has a really good head on his shoulders. He wants to work. He wants to get better playing basketball. He wants to be a basketball player. Again, that's the type of kid that I want to bet on long term. But it could be a really long time before he gets there. We, we knew coming into this season that he didn't know how to play the game of basketball at a high enough level he was going to struggle at times on both ends of the floor unless you're asking him to do really basic things like be a roll man to the basket or shoot a wide open jump shot on the wing he's not creating anything for you off the bounce he's not going to be an impressive shot maker he's going to score at the rim or on occasion he's going to knock down an open three point shot that's what he's going to do and then defensively He got better as the year went along. He definitely got more disciplined on that end, but he did find himself in frequent foul trouble at different points throughout the year. Doesn't understand how to play proper on-ball or off-ball defense. I think his technique is definitely lacking when you go back and look at some of the tape. And and as I said, none of the numbers for him really stand out and, and make an impressive case for him other than some of his um percentile rankings and in in really open shots or like a, as a role man in pick and roll sets that that's pretty much it so um I'm not taking Greg Brown in the first round some people have tried to make the argument for given his athletic profile him arguably being the best athlete in the entire draft he showed at least a little bit of skill at texas talking more about his personality who he is as a guy can't you make the argument to take him in the first round you can I'm not taking him in the first round. I really wanted to buy as much stock in Greg Brown towards the beginning of the year as possible because of some of the things I saw when you go back and watch some of his high school games, but he might be like three to four years out from contributing on an NBA floor. And that's like putting you right up against potentially like a rookie extension. That's a long time away, folks. And I'm not comfortable taking him with a first round pick. Do you bet on somebody like that in the second round? Yeah, you do. but in the second round. So that's why I have him as like a tier five guy, not pushing him up closer to the first round. Isaiah livers, Michigan forward, six, 232 pounds, 13 points per game last year, six rebounds two assists, 45% from the field, 43% from three, 87% from the free throw line. He's a shooting specialist. That's exactly what he is. He rates out in a lot of different shooting categories and off-ball movement type scoring opportunities, as well as somebody like a like a Corey Kispert or a Joe Joe Wieskamp, who we'll talk about in the next podcast. The main difference between somebody like Livers and a Kispert is that he doesn't offer as much value not shooting the basketball from the perimeter or somebody like a Kispert does. Livers is not nearly as good of a player off the balance. He's not nearly as good of a finisher around the basket. He's not really bringing you any value in terms of being a role man in in pick and roll sets. Again, he's not really attacking closeouts as well as other people. So, um, And then you, you factor in the, the, that he's, he, he's not blowing anybody away on the defensive end of the floor either. That's why I would have him in this tier five Versus valuing him as much as like a Corey Kispert. People wanted to make that argument at some point throughout the year. Would you? Why would you spend like a lottery pick or a mid first round pick on Corey Kispert if you can get Isaiah Livers in the second round? Because Isaiah Livers is the same player. That's why. That's exactly why Kispert is categorized differently. Um, Livers is going to have a pretty decent NBA career. At least in my opinion, I think he will. Anytime you have a shooter with his size that's going to provide value on an NBA floor, you'll you, you look to try and take that guy versus pass him along. But it's just, where do you draft him to get the appropriate value for your draft pick? And I think that's definitely somewhere um, in the early to mid second round. Maybe we'd have a different conversation. Maybe I'd be forced to have a different conversation if he had not gotten hurt during the tournament and he had helped Michigan go on an even deeper run than they did in the tournament. Maybe some things have to change there just because of the, some of the buzz you hear, et cetera. But Right now, I think early to mid-second round is where I'd be comfortable drafting livers, and I see him as like a seventh to ninth man on a good team. That's why I have him here. Jeremiah Robinson Earl, Villanova forward, 6'9", sophomore, almost 16 points per game, almost nine rebounds a game, two assists per game. Listen, Shout out to to Mavs. I feel like I'm shouting out all of draft Twitter on this podcast, but shout out to Mavs draft. I know that he still has a first round grade on Jeremiah Robinson Earl, but we did a mock draft podcast with with Chris LeBron earlier in the week. we, we, We talked about how having smart basketball players, you can't have enough smart basketball players. Somebody who is going to make the right decision and is going to absolutely limit the amount of mistakes he makes on the floor. And that's really the best thing you can say about Jeremiah Robinson Earl is he's going to score effectively around the basket. He can even post up a little bit, offer some some variety in his post game. Um, he's not going to make mistakes or make dumb passes or make dumb plays. He's going to operate pretty well in an NBA offense. He's just limited is the problem. Like When I listed out what you can expect from Robinson Earl, that's going to be his role in the league. Any idea that he's going to stretch the floor reliably is, again, it, it's theoretical at this point. Um, he only shot 28% from three this past year, 71% from the free throw line, um, didn't really rate out well in a lot of other areas. He was only in the 33rd percentile as a roll man at a pick and roll sets, was only in the 21st percentile scoring in transition. He's not hes not an above average athlete. I'd say hes he's probably, he's average. He has good length to him and he has really good instincts, particularly on the boards. So again, his mental makeup, his IQ, those are things that help him excel past his athleticism. But all jump shots was only in the 46th percentile, uh, was only in the 37th percentile in catch and shoot looks and didn't even register enough possessions for jump shots off the dribble to be categorized in a percentile by synergy. So he's a more limited offensive player. That's why I have him in this fifth tier. But make no mistake, though, again, as a seventh to ninth man in your rotation, like he's going to have a career in the NBA. He's going to find ways to contribute and and have his moments in the league. It's just it's not going to be at as high of a level maybe that we would have projected it to be at, you know, before more of his freshman year played out of Villanova last year where guys like Jonathan Wasserman wanted to like have him as like a lottery pick on their board. Like, no, he's, he's not a lottery-level talent, but he's somebody who deserves to be drafted and have his name called, again, probably like that early to mid-second round range in this year's draft. Jericho Sims, Texas center, did himself some favors at the Combine. Obviously, he's an athletic freak. He tested out really well athletically at the Combine. He certainly played to his role and to his strengths. In the scrimmages, had a pretty good outing and definitely definitely did himself some favors. Not going to lie. Um, 69.6% field goal percentage from the field last year. 65.8% your shooting percentage was in the 93rd percentile in total offense. He does the really, really easy things. Um, he's not a post-up big by any means, but he can be a guy who catches lobs off pick and roll. He's going to run the floor effectively, score in transition. That's more of the value that Sims is going to bring to the table. Can rebound the ball effectively. Just does not provide the defensive value that you wish he did with his size and his athletic package. I talked about this with with Tyler Rucker on that same podcast when we reacted to the combine. Him and I were kind of in, in lockstep agreement that if you draft Jericho Sims and you rewire and you rebuild his understanding of defense from the ground up over a few years, just given the tools that he possesses and how effectively he can at least finish around the basket offensively, do you know, you could wind up with like a starting caliber center off of like a second round pick. And that's a very valuable investment to be able to make. So I think that kind of a package, that potential, down the road as long as he's willing to put in the work to get there that's why you draft him like before the combine you could question if he was even worth a draft pick at all now you're walking away from the combine and you're saying yeah this guy's definitely going to get drafted he's definitely going to have a home for somebody in the nba so that's really impressive to me um, that, that he was able to to make that much of a positive jump and be firmly on draft boards at that point. And yeah, I am I would definitely take Jericho Sims with... Pr- you can make a case with an early second round pick if you believe that firmly in your developmental staff. He's probably going to go if he gets drafted like the 40s or the 50s. Um, but yeah, definitely did himself a lot of favors at the Combine for sure. Justin Champagny, Pittsburgh forward. His brother, Julian, would have 100% been on somewhere in these tiers as well. But he chose to go back to college Justin staying in the draft. And for, for good reason. He's an intriguing, intriguing player. 6'7 forward, um, 18 points per game, 11.1 rebounds per game. In college, I believe that is the second highest mark. Out of both of these tiers, yes, it is. Charles Bassey was first. Justin Champagny is second. Almost 48% shooting from the field. Only 31% from three and 71% shooting from the free throw line. 1.2 steals per game. 1.3 blocks per game. And was in the 84th percentile in total offense. The 80th percentile in total defense. So you hear some of those numbers. Why is Champagny only a tier five guy? And... Shout out to Jordan Ennis on the assistant development podcast with his brother, Jonathan. I ran this idea by him earlier today before I came on to record the podcast. I said to him, is Penny the next Kenneth Farid type of player? This undersized forward slash big who is incredibly effective on the glass on both ends of the floor who can score and finish inside with enough proficiency but can't really do much of anything reliably outside of five feet away from the basket. And despite some of the defensive value and the rebounding value that, that Farid gave you, um, eventually it came to a point where defenses just didn't care to guard him. And he wasn't able to provide enough value away from the basket to remain on the floor for longer stretches. And he kind of just phased out of the NBA. He kind of had a quiet exit out of the league. And if you're taking a player like Champagny and none of that stuff comes around for him either, you could be looking at a similar outcome for him. And that's really my concern with Justin. Do I think he's worth being drafted? 150%. I wouldn't have him amongst any of the first five tiers if I didn't think he should be drafted. But I'm also very cognizant of the risk that comes along with drafting a player like him with his statistical outlook. Um, I think his jump shots a little better than Fareed's right now, like coming in, like right away, coming into the league, he had moments, particularly, obviously the game against Duke where he was like matching Jalen Johnson shot for shot in the mid range. And that was one of the more impressive displays of mid range shot making. I saw all year long for both guys, but it's not a consistent tool in his bag. Um, nor is certainly his shooting from three point range either. So those are question marks that he's going to have to answer just like Raekwon Gray that's champ that's Champagne's biggest swing skill um and he doesn't provide any of the playmaking value that 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 Raquan Gray offers you either so that's why there's like a tier separation between them as well Kessler Edwards man shout out to Bryce Hendricks one of Bryce's favorite players in this draft not one of his top 5 players like like a Kai Jones but I think he just released his latest big board today. I think he had Kessler somewhere like 14th or 15th um, on his board. This is a guy who, if you if you just look at the numbers, you look at his statistical case and you think, this guy is definitely like a top 30 pick. Like, why wouldn't I value him as like a definite first round pick? And it more goes along with the eye test. Um offensively. I've said this to multiple people. I don't know how he effectively scores in the NBA from day one. Um, He can finish the really easy stuff in transition. He can attack a closeout and finish around the basket that way. But like a lot of the highlight packages that you'll see from Kessler Edwards, if you go back and dig through some film of him at Pepperdine, he has this really intriguing post-up game that he was incredibly efficient out of. He had this pretty solid turnaround fadeaway mid-range jumper like out of some of those post-ups that he could go to and it was cash money in college especially against some of the the competition he went up against man the 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 combine scrimmage really put into perspective how he's not going to be able to create those same shots against nba caliber defenders that he did in college and that really worries me um, that's why you can run through a lot of the numbers and I will for you right now because they're, they are noteworthy and I can see metrics wise, why draft Twitter loves them so much. Almost a 61 true shooting percentage, 91st percentile in total offense, 94th percentile in, in scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler on limited volume, but still nonetheless, 95th percentile in post-ups that speak to some of that in- intriguing part to his game that I talked about 86th percentile on cuts and putbacks. The 85th percentile scoring out of transition, um, like th- that's a really, that's a really awesome statistical profile to have as an NBA draft prospect. Um, but but the eye test just does not match up well for me. Defensively, I have nothing bad to say about him. He could end up being the best wing defender in the entire draft, and I might have people look at me if I say that, and they're like, "Well, if he could be the best wing defender in the entire draft." why don't you at least have him in tier four as a defensive specialist? And then we kind of see where his offensive game can go from there. You're kind of contradicting yourself if you're theoretically calling him a specialist, but you don't have him in a specialist tier. Is he going to provide enough offensive value to definitely get on the floor to prove that he could be the best wing defender in the draft? I'm personally not sold. I'm not sold and I'm going to leave Kessler Edwards in this tier five if I'm if I'm wrong about Kessler-Edwards and he's a much better offensive player than I thought and he plays closer to those numbers in college in the NBA than, than, than not, I'm, I'm willing to eat all the crow and Kessler-Edwards, Bryce, Chuck, CT, whoever else, whoever else from Draft Twitter wants to call me out and, and, and say that I was wrong about Kessler-Edwards, perfectly fine, bring it on, but I have him as a tier five guy. Matt Coleman, Texas point guard. I've went through some of Matt Coleman's numbers before on this, on this podcast because I actually interviewed Matt on this podcast, and again, if he, if he comes across this or his agent Jordan Cornish comes across this, thank you so much for letting me interview Matt on the podcast. I greatly appreciated that. Is he even 6'2"? Is a decent question to ask because how many 6'2 guards have a shooting and scoring profile like Matt does? almost 49% from the field as a senior point guard, almost 38% from three, 81% from the free throw line, 60.2 true shooting percentage ranked in the 97th percentile in isolation scoring, 75th percentile scoring in pick and roll sets as the ball handler, 87th percentile in transition, 97th percentile and 85th percentiles respectively in isolations and pick and rolls, including passes. And the number that sticks out to me the most Um, that he was in the 92nd percentile, finishing around the basket in the country, shooting 71.7% around the basket. How many guards his size can finish around the basket like that? Go find me a list, because I bet it's a short list. His poise, his command for the game from the point guard spot. NBA teams are always looking for better leaders from the backup point guard spot to come in and run second units. That's why I've, I've had the argument this whole time. I was not blowing smoke up Matt's ass on on the podcast by, by any means for saying that he, he should be a top 60 guy and should definitely be drafted. Like, no, I've firmly believed that for a while. The statistical profile rates out. He's like perfectly suited to be a backup point guard in the NBA. So Sure, you can make a second round pick on somebody who you think offers more upside. You can make the home run swing. Or if your team needs a backup point guard, you can take a guy like him or we'll talk about McKinley Wright on the next podcast. I'm not as high on McKinley Wright as I am on Matt, but or you can take one of those two guys who you know are probably going to have cases to be backup point guards in the league for years to come. And you can get known value with that second round pick. I tend to drift more towards the known value segment, but to to each their own. But yes, I, I have Matt Coleman as a tier five guard, and I definitely think he deserves to be to be drafted. Could you make the argument that he's maybe in like the top end of that tier six? Sure. But the reason why I have him tier five again is I think he definitely has a case to be drafted. And I would draft him in, in the second round, 100%. Nimaeus Keta. Utah State Center, seven feet with a seven four wingspan. Some of his numbers are ridiculous. 15 points, 10 rebounds per game, 3.3 blocks per game, 30.4 PER, ranked in the 81st percentile on offense and the 88th percentile defensively. Um, rates out well in a lot of other defensive metrics per synergy. Um, I got no problems with his rim protection. I think he's a good enough athlete to at least not get utterly dominated in defending in space. He's just more limited offensively. He is just like Charles Bassey. He's pretty much exclusively around the basket, five feet and in. Um, doesn't really have the, the, the jump shot to be able to write home about. To stand out. He is exclusively a rim running, rim protecting, rebounding big man. And depending on how you value those guys, if you need a backup big to come in and fill that role, maybe you take him in the early second round. If you don't value that role, that type of player as much, maybe you take him in the mid to late second round. I think he's definitely going to get drafted. I think his play at the Combine warrants, he gets drafted. Um, Probably the most underrated part of his game, in my opinion, is some of the playmaking that he flashed this past year in college, particularly um, later in the season for Utah State. And he showed some of that playmaking on display in the Combine as well. So he's somebody who provides value elsewhere potentially offensively just not from a scoring standpoint um he he kind of is who he is and there's not really any need for me to spend more time on him other than just saying that you either like him or you don't you're either gonna draft him or you're not quentin grimes houston wing six 210 pound guard slash wing out of houston points per game, 5.7 rebounds, two assists per game. Only shot 40.6% from the field. Did shoot 40% from three and 79% from the line. He's pretty much exclusively a jump shooter at this point. However, he did show that he was capable of doing more in high school. He wasn't able to do those things at Kansas. That's why he had a disappointing freshman year there and he transferred out if he ever rediscovers any of that scoring stuff off the bounce, if he improves his mid-range shooting, creating off of a few dribbles off the bounce, then he could potentially be like a first round pick. Even in my eyes, like he he's being mocked. I think the last mock that uh, Gavoni and Schmitz did for ESPN, they had him the 28th going to the 76ers. Some people would be, disappointed with that pick i wouldn't be disappointed with that pick because he knows his role he's a mature player at this point and he shoots the hell out of the ball from deep in a variety in a variety of different ways um and he also really competes and plays his ass off defensively um he has a he another another kid great head on his shoulders um has definitely been coached up well by kelvin sampson at houston so um, Kelvin Sampson's a coach who's not going to take any nonsense from these guys. He's going to put them in roles where he knows they're going to succeed. Um, he certainly has experience with the NBA game. So finding a home for these guys in the NBA is definitely, um, a mission of his. I'm sure if you would ask him and, and interview him. So I think that Quentin Grimes playing under coach Sampson was one of the best coaches I think he could have played for. I said that to, to Tyler as well on a previous podcast, uh backcourt violation, 84th percentile in total offense, 91st percentile in total defense. That's a clean cut case when you factor in how he can shoot from three, the different ways he can shoot from three. It's a clean cut case to certainly be drafted early second rounds, probably where I would target Grimes. That's higher than I anticipated that I would um, at the beginning of this draft period. But he's won me over from his play this year, his play at the combine. Um, some of the, the, the quotes I've heard from him talking to some people, He's won me over and I would value him with an early second round pick and, and sure, there are other guards at the end of the first round that I'd rather Philly take because I think they have a little more upside. But I wouldn't be mad if Grimes went to Philly at 28. Roko prokashin another draft Twitter favorite. 6'9", forward prospect out of Croatia, 13 points per game. This past year, six point eight rebounds, one point six assists, forty-nine point eight, forty point three, sixty four point nine shooting splits. I gotta be honest. I I I don't I don't see it with Prakashin. Um and 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 it was good that Bryce Hendricks came on my podcast to to play devil's advocate with me and and give me a old-fashioned sell me this pen. Um uh, on Roko in that segment shout out to our friends at the Draft Act. Um, it was good that he did that, but I go back and I watch some of the film. I question the competition that he played against. I think things looked a little too easy for him overseas. I know he's a really good to potentially great athlete. I just I don't trust the finishing. I don't trust the shot making off of the bounce. Even some of the open three point shooting. Just given his free throw percentage, I think the the shooting's been a little overblown. I'm not sold on a lot defensively. This is probably like the guy who I could point to in draft Twitter versus how I rate and evaluate prospects. This is probably my biggest discrepancy other than Kessler Edwards um, is Roko Prakashian. I understand the argument, six, nine wings, who can do stuff off the move, who can shoot the ball from three. Um, those guys always deserve to be in arguments. I, I'm 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 not sold. I'm just not sold. I can't really, I don't really have a good way to explain it with him. Um, if somebody else wants to come on the podcast at some point before the draft and and take another crack at, um, breaking down a few things with me on film and selling them to me, by all means, go ahead and reach out to me. The DMS are always open. Um, but that's where I stand on him. I see him more as like a seventh through ninth guy in a rotation versus being this like surefire starter that, that, that some other scouts and evaluators do. And then last but not least, Sam Hauser, Virginia wing six, eight. Um, one of the older players in this draft, however, I think he has a first round case. I have him in tier five. I don't have him in tier four because of his age, because of some of his defense that I'm not in love with, but offensively, he has moments where you go back and pop on some Virginia tape and he looks like a poor man's Gordon Hayward. And the numbers love this guy. 50% shooting from the field, 41%. 9.7% 07 percent from three, 89.6% from the free throw line. So very, very close to a 50-40-90 year last year, 25.2 PER, 63.5 true shooting percentage, ranked in the 97th percentile in total offense, 95th percentile in isolation scoring, 96th percentile out offense out of post-ups, 89th percentile out of spot-ups, 81st off screens, 84th on cuts, 92nd in transition ranked in the 93rd and 94th percentiles, respectively, in isolations and post-ups, including passes, and then all of his jump shot numbers across the board check out, as well as the percentages. So, if you're looking at a player like that, I can understand why you might not value him as a starter. I don't think he moves that well laterally. I I don't think he's going to be a plus on the defensive end in the league. But again, we're talking about second-round picks You're not going to get them to do everything on an NBA floor. They're going to have their strengths. They're going to have their weaknesses. But this dude's offensive strengths and shot making ability, I think, outweigh the defensive concerns to enough of a degree that he's absolutely a rotation player in the NBA. Um, I would certainly target Sam Hauser with an early second round pick. I think he's that good offensively, and I think he's going to provide that much value and shock some people. Um, in the NBA from day one. He is, he can be a deadly shot maker when he gets hot. And yeah, any, anytime you're talking about an offensive talent of that magnitude, he definitely has a first round case, at least in my eyes, he does. Um, And, and, and Jordan Ennis, when we were talking about a few people today, I mentioned, I was talking to about Justin Champagny, but he said that doesn't the defense with Sam Hauser, worry you at all? And I said, why does it have to matter to a specific degree? Why does the defense of a second round pick have to hold me back from valuing him with an early second round grade to even like a late first grade if he's that special offensively? He's not the lead athlete. He's not an elite creator by himself. But again, all the percentages check out. Any Any situation you want to set this guy up to score in, he can do it. And that type of role player is always valued in the NBA and always will be. And if he's one of these guys we come back to down the road and we all look at each other and say, why wasn't he a first round pick? Because he's doing something for a playoff team would not shock me in the slightest. So that's why I would definitely take him with an early second rounder. But with that said, that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. 33 guys, man, I think we nailed it. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, tiers four and five. Tiers six and seven will be our next podcast that we release. Thank you so much. If you made it to the end of this podcast, it's another long one. Um, But this is what we do over here at draft deeper. We cover everybody. We want to talk about everybody in in some regard. Um, And we want to make a case for them or make a case against them. We want to have our opinions and, and our thoughts out in the open. I want to bring everybody behind the scenes and, and share my thoughts and, and, maybe educate somebody on a prospect and any responses that we get on social media. If you follow us at draft Twitter, you can always tweet at me. Again, like I said, some of my DMS are open. Um, talk to me about a prospect. Tell me why I'm right. Tell me why I'm wrong. And that discourse, it makes us both better. So absolutely get at me on social media. If you aren't subscribed to the podcast already, um, wherever you get it, Apple podcast, Spotify, YouTube, definitely subscribe. We got plenty more content coming. Like I said, tier six and seven will be our next podcast. We have the mock draft podcast with Matt Maurer coming in in the next coming weeks. That'll be a two-parter doing a full GM style first round mock. We'll have a few more podcasts dispersed in there as well. And then we'll, we'll definitely have something planned for draft night. So stay tuned for all those plans on social media. But with that being said, thank you all again for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your week.